Welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Church. Covenant Grace Church is one church meeting in multiple locations. This message was recorded at our Menifee campus. Father, as we come before you, we know that this time is different than any other time. Lord, this isn't just uh, a guy giving a speech or some good thoughts. Lord, this is a time to hear from your word. And we know, Lord, that when your word is preached, it's a different type of communication altogether that you speak through your word at this time. And so we're excited, Lord. We're excited to hear from you. We pray that you would guide anything that I'd say and that it would be um, completely from your word and true. We pray, Lord, that you would impress upon the hearts of the people here the things that you would have for them to hear, Lord. Um, They are not here by accident. You brought them to this place and this time. This is our meeting time with you, and we pray you'd speak. Pray you'd open hearts. Pray you'd change hearts. Lord, we don't necessarily just want like a list of things to to do later, Lord. We would love for you to change our heart and our attitude and our way of seeing you and the world at this moment during this time. Lord, And you've done it so many times before, and we thank you for that. We pray you do it again. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So guys, we're um, in Matthew 6, um, verse 9. It's um, in the Sermon on the Mount, and we're back in our Sermon on the Mount series. We took a break from it for a little while, and, um, and now we're back. And um, it stretches from Matthew 5 to Matthew 7, and what we're doing with this series is we're trying to actually learn how to do the things Christ has commanded in this sermon by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what we say when we talk about discipleship. It's learning to do all the things Christ commanded by the power of the Spirit. And we believe the Sermon on the Mount is something we can actually learn to do with God's power. And one of the ways that we kind of get that power to live that way is through prayer. And so this morning, we're going to look at the Lord's Prayer. Learning to pray, guys, is one of the most important parts of discipleship. Um, I don't know how many of you have kind of either been a part of discipling another person or, or have been on the other end of that, but one of the things that, one of the core things that we need to teach each other and help each other with is prayer. Charles Spurgeon, the famous preacher from the 1800s, said, I would rather teach one person to pray than ten to preach. Prayer is essential, and a lot of times we leave it off. We, you know, it depends on how we're geared. If we're geared more towards doctrine and study of the Bible and things like that, then we'll get together and just do that. But it is vital that we learn how to pray. And it's something vital that we should teach our children. This passage is a great passage to get your kids started memorizing the Bible. So get them uh, practicing memorizing um, the Lord's Prayer, and you'd be surprised how early and how well they can memorize. Their brains work way better than ours. Um, After a certain time, you can't learn a thing. But when you're young, you have this brain that can soak things up, and it'd be a great thing for them to memorize. Historically, that's been something that's been core to the way that uh, believers have have discipled their kids. Um, I have here the the Heidelberg Catechism, and uh, you can get this for free online, but the Heidelberg Catechism is is a catechism that people would use for new believers and for children. And the last section of it, after it talks about the Ten Commandments and everything, the last section of it goes through the Lord's Prayer, and it says, what does this petition mean? What does that petition mean? And that would be a great thing to go through with your kids. It's free online, Heidelberg Catechism. Um, The Westminster Catechism would do the same type of thing. Um, But this morning, guys, Jesus wants to teach us, his disciples, his students, how to pray. Last week, Josh taught an excellent message on the beginning of uh, chapter 6. And the error that, that Jesus was addressing there was the error of the Pharisees. And the error of the Pharisees was that they chose the wrong audience for their prayer. Okay? Instead of thinking about praying to God, they thought about praying in front of other people. They were doing it for human approval. Well, this week, Jesus is going to confront the error of the Gentiles or the pagans. And their problem with prayer is that their prayers tended to be meaningless and mechanical. 
Not that any of us can relate to that. Meaningless and mechanical. Look at verse 7. It says, when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they'll be heard by their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask. There's this tendency in prayer, isn't there? Would you guys agree with me? Or I could just be the only one. Um, to become mindless in our prayer and mechanical and just kind of go through emotions where we could be all words and no heart. Um, in Eastern religions, the most dramatic example of this is the Buddhist prayer wheels. When I went to Mongolia, they had these things. And, and it's a wheel. Instead of like praying a prayer, there's a wheel that has a prayer. And if you spin it, it's just like praying it. And you'll see, now that you know what they are, you'll see it in pictures where there'll be whole huge rows of them. People just go down the row spinning all these wheels. And each one of them's praying. Every time it goes around, it prays. The idea being that you would get the positive karma, that you would get the credit for praying without praying. It's like automated, you know? It's amazing, right? And it makes sense for the Buddhist system because the Buddhist system is not about having a relationship with a personal God. That's not what Buddhism is about. And so it makes sense to have a very mechanical way of getting it done because you're dealing with, uh, you're not dealing with a personal deity. But we can do it too, guys, can't we? We can kind of go through the motions of our prayers without any meaning, all word and no heart. We can even do it with this prayer. Um, I, I've, I've done it with this prayer, you know? How many of you have grown up in a tradition where it was like, okay, you know, you did that, give me ten Our Fathers, you know? And you would just kind of run through them, you know? And it was something that you would do kind of mechanically. We can take even this prayer and do that. But this teaching, guys, the Lord's Prayer, verses 9 through 13, is so amazing because it helps us do two things. It helps us to wake up to who we're talking to, which helps a lot. And it also reminds us to bring very substantial requests to him. So those are the two things we're going to look at. How it wakes us up to who we're talking to and the substantial requests it calls us to. First, it wakes us up. Look at verse 9. Jesus says, pray then like this, our Father in heaven. Okay, this doesn't seem revolutionary to you because you've heard it before. But in Jesus' time, calling God Father was very unusual. In the Old Testament, there's only maybe like four references to God being referenced as Father. This was very unusual. And when Jesus did it, and he did it all the time, he freaked the religious leaders out. They got very upset at him. Because they saw it as improper, they saw it as blasphemous to call God Father. We're real cozy with him, so we don't kind of see this. But the cool thing is, guys, is that Father is the very title that God is telling us to use for him. It's as if when you pray, you go into the very throne room of God, and you do spiritually. You go into the very throne room of God, and imagine you're going in there, and you're coming before God, and you're super nervous, and you know, he's, 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 he's awesome, he's powerful, and so you're saying things like, um, your excellency, or uh, Lord God Almighty, and then you're like, oh, what do you want me to call you? And God smiles and he says, call, just call me your father. Isn't that amazing? God of the universe says to call him father. How does that change how you think about God and prayer? Go ahead and answer me. How does that change? When you, when you come before God and you say, our father, how does it change how you think about God? Personal. It's personal. What else? That's good. It's personal. God's a personal God. He's not like the God I was mentioning, you know, with Buddhism or some other Eastern religion. He's a personal being. He's approachable. He's safe, right? What else? We're his children. You know, I'm his child. You know, we're coming to him in a whole different way. And I love how Jesus does it. He goes, from the beginning, we've got to start on the right foot. And the right foot is, he's your father. You need to come that way. Um, what does it remind us of? It reminds us of the fact that we're his kids, like you were talking about. God doesn't listen to us because of the worthiness of our prayers. I think once we start talking about having meaningful prayer and stuff like that, you start to think, oh, I don't know if I can do a worthy prayer. You can't. Okay, so we'll just start there. You can't do a worthy prayer. God doesn't listen to our prayers because they're worthy. Like you finally figured it out 
And he was like, those last ones, they aren't worth my time, but that prayer, you know, it's not that kind of a deal. He doesn't listen to us because our prayers are worthy. He listens to us because we're his kids, right? Tim Keller asked this question, who is the only person who can dare to wake up a king at 3 a.m. and ask for a glass of water? And that's a dangerous thing to do, right? Who is the only person that can wake up a king at 3 a.m. and ask him for a glass of water? His, kid, his wife or his kid, right? His wife could too. His kid can, you know? So we come before him boldly because we're his kids. He's our father. And so calling him father reminds us that. Calling him father reminds us that he's infinitely wise, right? If he's our father and we're the kids, then we know far less about the world than he does, which is an understatement. But we tend to be kind of like that two-year-old kid that goes, okay, I've been on this earth for 24 months, and now I know how it works, and you guys are all doing it wrong, you know, right? That's the way kids tend to be. We tend to be like that, that way with God. God knows far more than we know. It says in verse 8, he knows what you need already. Our Father is wise in all that he chooses to answer us, right? So when we pray, that prayer gets filtered through his wisdom, and then out comes his response, and we want that. Have you guys ever heard people say, be careful what you ask for, you just might get it? And this idea that you could ask something from God and just get it, and it would be bad for you, Right? But the, the assumption under that is that he isn't wise, but our Father, guys, is way too wise to give us anything that's not for our long-term good. He always gives us what's for our good. God, listen to this, God always gives us exactly what we would have asked for if we knew everything he knows, right? God always gives us what we would have asked for if we knew everything that he knows. Everything he gives us has been filtered, it's been filtered through his, uh, his fatherly, perfect, wise mind. How reassuring is that? Because we don't know what we're doing. I mean, you know, it, Romans 8 talks about it. We don't know what to pray. You know, we come before him, and we just kind of, you know, verbally vomit out our hearts to him. We don't know that all these things should happen, right? We think they should, but he knows better. And because he's our father, he's infinitely wise, and he knows just what to do with what we bring. We should trust him. The, the, the next thing that shows us, it's, it says, our Father who's in heaven. And I don't think that the important thing here that Jesus is trying to bring up is our Father's place of residence, but his unlimited power. He has unlimited power. He's our Father in heaven. He has unlimited power. Our Father is sovereign, meaning he can do anything that's a feat of power. Anything that's a feat of power, he can do it. Okay? He has unlimited power. He's omnipotent. He also is completely free to do whatever he wants, whenever he wants. And he does. Isn't that cool? Unlimited power, he can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants. God is sovereign. And I know some people say this. They go, well, you know, and I've wrestled with this. You know, if God is sovereign, why should we pray? And I would ask the question, would a God that isn't sovereign be better for you to pray to? Right? It's good that he's sovereign, right? He is in complete control. He does whatever he wants, whenever he wants. And guys, prayer does change things. And I don't know how all that works, but prayer changes outcomes. In James, it says, you have not because you ask not. And the implication there is, is that if you would have prayed, it would have happened. But you didn't pray, so it didn't happen. And so this sovereign God, he cares about our prayers, and he's moved by them. Through the wisdom he has, he decides what to do. He has unlimited power. Doesn't that make you a little bit more excited to pray to him? You know, just to come and go, okay, wait, who is he? Let me wake up to this, and then I'll pray. Next thing that'll help, too is bring substantial requests to him. And that's in verses uh, 9 through 13. You see um, six different requests there. I'll treat them as five, but there's six of them. And um, there's three that are kind of God word. They say your before him. So um, your name, 
your kingdom, your will. So those are God word ones. And then there's, I guess, us word, I don't know, where it says give us, forgive us, deliver us. So there's God word ones, and then there's us word ones, I guess. Um, The first one is hallowed be your name, verse 9. God's name stands for all that he is. So when we say hallowed be your name, we're saying hallowed be God, hallowed be you, right? What we're saying there is we're saying God be treasured because hallowed means to treat as holy, to treat as set apart. And so what we're asking for is that God would be treated as holy, that he'd be treated as set apart, that he would be treated as unique, as rare, as valuable, as essential, as exquisite. You know, that he is this one and only God who is everything to us. And, and when we pray, hallowed be your name, we're praying, Lord, um, make more and more people see your greatness. When we pray, pray, hallowed be your name, we're asking God to display his value in the world so that more and more people would treasure him. And you know, guys, this is the whole reason the, the universe exists. The universe exists to display the glory of God. The universe exists like a setting holding a diamond to show forth God's glory. That's what this is all for. Isn't that well? That's what the whole thing's for. It's to show forth his glory. To put God on display is infinitely valuable. And you know, guys, for, for us to see the true value of God and treasure him, that's the greatest need of our hearts. That's the greatest need of every human soul is to see the true value of God and treasure him. Because God is the only source of everlasting happiness. Super important you find him. Super important you know how valuable he is. It's super important that you would drink deeply of who he is because he is the source of never-ending happiness. Um, Uh, Psalm 1611 says this, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, God, is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Let me just ask you this. Is that how you think about God? Do you think of God as the place, uh, the person that's fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore? And, And if you're honest, you might be like, no, I don't really think of that. That's the way to think about him. The way to think about God is that he is the source of all joy, and that he has pleasures forevermore. Uh, does he please you? Is he, does he give you joy and pleasure to be with him, to commune with him, to spend time with him? Is he savory to you? That's for his name to be hallowed. Imagine it this way. Imagine that there's a fountain, guys, so a fountain in the middle of a desert, and the desert's like just complete sand, okay? There's like no, hardly any plants or anything. It's just complete sand, and there's this fountain in the middle of the desert, and this fountain is not like one of the little drippy ones. You go, maybe I need to change the motor on this thing. No, it's gushing, right? There's tons of water flowing over this thing, and the water's actually falling down onto the sand, and wherever it falls, it's creating life. You know, there's plants springing up and stuff like that. It's gushing, And imagine that that fountain is the only place in this whole vast desert for the inhabitants to find life-giving water. What would be the most important thing in their lives? Most important thing for these people would be to find that fountain, to live near that fountain, and to drink deeply from that fountain. I mean, their, their joy, their refreshment, and their very life depends on it. God, guys, is that one and only fountain in the middle of the universe. He is the only source of everlasting life and refreshment. Everything else, guys, in life is basically sand. And there are things that we get joy from, right, in this life. We get joy and satisfaction, but we only get joy and satisfaction from things in this life because they somehow are reflecting the beauty and worth of God. Isn't that cool? The reason they give us life and joy is because they're reflecting the beauty and the worth of God. So whether it's joy in like a really good friend or a stunning sunset or um, some mountain that's massive and makes you feel tiny, it's a wonderful feeling right? Or a roar of the ocean or that drug-like feeling that you have with romantic love or the birth of your child. All those things give us joy because they're reflecting something of who God is and the value of him. 
they've all in some way kind of been splashed upon by the fountain of everlasting joy. Okay, so God himself is that true fountain. So when we pray, hallowed be your name, we're asking God to display his value to the world so that more and more people would treasure him. Do you have people in your life that you desperately love but that do not find him to be the source of their joy? You know, that, that have not yet found the fountain of living water and have not found the happiness that comes from drinking deeply of him? That's why we pray, hallowed be your name. Um, and we pray it so that, like Charles Wesley says, that Jesus would be the desire of every nation and the joy of every longing heart. Like, that's what we pray when we pray, hallowed be your name. Um, we pray uh, for his kingdom, verse 10. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What is God's kingdom? A lot of times we read this thing about kingdom of God, and Jesus talked about it all the time, but I think um, we hear about it very little. That's why every time it comes up, I spend a lot of time on it. The, the kingdom of God is God's reign. The kingdom of God is wherever, like the second half of verse 10 says, God's will is being done on earth as it is in heaven. So anywhere that God's will is being done on earth as it is in heaven, there you're experiencing the kingdom of God. Um, God's kingdom is present wherever his good commands are being lived out. It makes sense. If he's a king and he has a kingdom, wherever his subjects are living according to his rule, that is a place that you will experience the kingdom of God. And you might wonder, well, why isn't it like that everywhere? You know, why is it only in patches? And the reason is there was a rebellion. There was a rebellion that human beings rebelled against God's kingdom. And I don't know exactly the date. This is before dates were kept. But there was a time shortly after human beings began to live on the earth that they rebelled against God, that they were deceived by a being who wanted to take control of this place. And so they believed him, and Satan became, brought his kingdom into this world. And what we're experiencing now is, is the, Satan and his kingdom and the power he has in this world. His kingdom, the kingdom of darkness, kingdom of Satan, is the hidden cause of all the misery in this world. You know, we all have our conspiracy theories. You can go on YouTube for days. You could start, you know, chemtrails. I don't want to offend anybody that loves chemtrails or hates them or whatever you do with chemtrails. Um, or you, all these things. You talk about the man or you talk about the conspiracy of the elites or you talk about the conspiracy of this and that. There's a bigger deal, guys. Like that whole idea of like there's a conspiracy, you feel that because it's true, okay? It's just the one you have is tiny, okay? It's the kingdom of darkness. And and that's the real reason that, that this world is the wreck that it's in. And we all see the effects, right? We all see the effects of this. Even if you don't believe in the devil, even if you don't believe in a kingdom of darkness, you see the effects. The effects like death and disease and famine and war and oppression and injustice and crime and violence and abuse, isolation, loneliness, ecological destruction would be one of them. Even down to the daily strife we have in our relationships. And we all see this and we all have different reasons we think it's happening. It's the man you know, it's the government, it's this, it's that. But, um, and we all come up with different explanations. I mean, some people say, you know, well, our world would be fine if we just had more education. That's what we need. We, if people are more educated, we wouldn't have all these problems, that's the solution. Other people go, well, we need the government to step in and regulate this and make some laws. Then we have other people that go, no, that's the exact problem. The problem is the government's meddling too much and we need to dismantle this thing and we need less regulation. Other people say, you know, we need more religion. Things were better when we had more religion. And then there's other people that go, like, religion, that's the reason we're all fighting against each other. That's the main cause of strife in the world, right? Other people say, oh, well, we need more technology. If we just, you know, technology's the answer. We could solve, these, solve all these things with technology. And other people go, like, no, 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 we need to live more naturally. We need less technology. We need to live more naturally. We need to kind of become grazers and herbivores. 
and wander the woods. You know, that would be the solution. But guys, if the real problem with our world is that it's under the power of an evil kingdom, then all those solutions are pretty superficial. They're not going to work, right? What we need is a good king and a good kingdom to come in and overthrow the kingdom of darkness. And that's exactly, guys, the good news that Jesus preached. We miss this a lot of times, but it says when Jesus came that he came preaching the good news of the kingdom. He came preaching the good news of the kingdom. That God's kingdom had come in Jesus and was invading and would eventually one day overtake the kingdom of darkness. And then on the cross, Jesus died to defeat Satan and the kingdom and his kingdom so that, and Satan's kingdom so that he could completely cast him out one day and make the world new. Like that's one of the things the cross is about. A theological term for that is Christus Victor. That Christ on the cross was the victory, got the victory so that he could come in here and renovate the entire world to, to eliminate Satan's kingdom. Um, I saw online uh, this week, a friend of mine had posted an objection. I think they were actually liking an objection, so I considered this something that they like. And, um, and it was this, the problem I have with religion is that God could fix this world, but doesn't. I think this is a very good objection, right? I mean, if God is all-powerful, and he's all-good, then what's this about? Right? Like, that's very reasonable. God is a problem with religion is that God could fix this world, but doesn't. But guys, if Christus Victor is true, and it is, no one in human history has cared more about the mess of this world, and no one has done anything like him to actually fix it. He has done exactly what's needed to fix this world. On the cross, he died to make the world new. And so your issue with him might be his speed in applying it, but it can't be that God doesn't care or that he's not powerful enough. He's done both of those things. His kingdom is coming. When we pray your kingdom come, we're praying that his kingdom would come into this world and make things new. But we got to ask this question. I don't know if you thought of this already, but what about us? Because we've been a part of this rebellion. It isn't just like, oh yeah, Satan deceived those people. We've been great, you know. But there's this whole problem and we're victims and all that. No, we've taken part in the rebellion, haven't we? You guys realize that sin is a declaration of war against the king? Sin is a declaration of war against, against God. And we're doing it daily. It's not like we declared war once. We, we do it daily. What about us? Well, the good news, guys, is that King Jesus has laid down his life on the cross to pay for your treason. What king does that? Kings don't do that. King Jesus did that. He lays down his life on the cross to pay for your treason, to pay for your sin. And right now, guys, King Jesus is giving out amnesty to all those who will surrender to him. Word amnesty floats around a lot, right, today? And I'm not going to get political about that at all. That's not my intent. But I was thinking about the word amnesty. It's a super beautiful gospel word. And I was looking into the word amnesty because I was thinking like, yeah, I was thinking about the kingdom of God. I'm thinking the crimes against the king. And then amnesty is the word. Amnesty is the word for the thing that Jesus got for us. And that he surrendered his life on the cross to give us amnesty. Amnesty means a decision by an authority such as a government or a kingdom, a king, to forgive people who have committed particular illegal acts or crimes and did not punish them. The word amnesty comes from the same Greek word as amnesia. You can hear it there, right? It's to forget. How would you like God to forget all of your sin? It says in Jeremiah 31, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. That's what Jesus died to do, to forget your sin, to give you amnesty. And if you come to him today, if you surrender your life, you have to lay down your arms, of course, you just surrender your life to this king. But if you surrender your life to this king, he doesn't just like then promptly cut your head off. He gives you amnesty. 
And he lets you live in his kingdom and start to live in the kingdom life now. Like we can begin to live that kingdom life that's coming when he comes and reigns. We can begin to live some of that now. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is about. So when you pray your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, you're asking for the kingdom of God to grow in this world, to to overtake this world. That's what you're praying for. First starting in your own life, right? As you live his word and his commandments. And then it would spread all around you. And all around you guys, as you're living the kingdom life, and as we do this together, I talked about it a few weeks ago, we're an embassy of the kingdom. The church is an embassy of the kingdom where, where the king's subjects come together and learn to live for him. And it's a place where people who don't know him can come to the embassy and they can learn what the kingdom life's like and learn how to become citizens of the kingdom through the death of Christ. And so it, as we live it, it the world becomes uh, more like heaven and less like hell, Right? There's a spectrum in this world. Some of it's a lot like hell. In the areas where the kingdom is being lived, it's more like heaven. And as we live that way together, um, we get to experience, and other people that don't even know them, get to experience foretastes and appetizers of what the kingdom will be like when it comes. And I got to experience that this week when I went on Wednesday to Sun City Gardens of all places. You want to experience a bit of the kingdom of God. It's there, right? So we were there and, and Chad and and uh, Jim, and, and there was a good crew of people that were there. It was really fun. Uh, the Vandenbergs were there. It was uh, Dustin. I won't name all the names. But anyway, we're sitting there. Chad's leading some worship, um, sharing some scripture with them. There's this lady up front, Elizabeth. She's super charismatic. She's like, you wouldn't think if you looked at her, but she's like, mm-hmm, yep, yep. And he was talking about the fall, and she's like, that's not good. You know, I mean, she was like super into it. It was so cool. <clears throat> and then afterwards, I saw her talking to Chad, and I was walking up. I thought she was speaking in tongues, but she's German, so that's what that was. It was another tongue, and um, they were talking. It was so good, and she was so excited to be there. She's like, I'm going to invite friends. Like, we're going to blow this thing up. She, was, she didn't say that, but that's basically what she was like. We're going to grow this thing. You know, it was awesome. But you could feel there was something, like, just right about that time, you know? Like, it was the best place you could be at that moment. It was, we were experiencing the kingdom of God. We were experiencing a pocket of the kingdom. It was a piece of heaven. At Sun City Gardens, you know, so well hidden. Um, this prayer, guys, too, of your kingdom come is also evangelistic. It's also missional. Um, God's kingdom spreads as it includes more and more people. As people hear the good news of the kingdom and they believe and they join. It, it's got a missions feel. And, and while I'm mentioning that, Jesus did tell us what would usher in his kingdom. Do you know what it is? He actually told us that there's a thing that we could do that would trigger it. To, to happen. You guys realize that? He said he would return when every people group heard the gospel. You guys realize that? Like he actually told us how to, tr- he told us where the switch is, right? <laughs> you guys realize this? So we pray about this, but he told us that when all nations, when the gospel's gone to all nations, that just doesn't mean just like nation, like country, every people group, then he would return. And the cool thing is you guys get to be involved in that. I mean, Holly in Cambodia, she's in a country where there are pockets that are unreached people groups. And once all of them have heard the gospel, guess what? The king returns and makes all things new. This is what it looks like. Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. That's really cool. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And he himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore, for the former things will pass away. How does that sound? When we pray, guys, your kingdom come, that's what we're praying for. And that prayer request 
will 100% happen. You know, we pray for a lot of things. We're not sure if it's God's will or not, you know. Give me six figures. Give me this. You know, all this stuff, right? But this one, we know he'll answer. He will do this. We're kingdom come. Look at verse 11. There's a big shift here. Give us this day our daily bread. Huge shift. It goes from all the yours to the, to the us's. And it's an abrupt change. It's like, Father, bring in your global kingdom. Set all things right. Take away all suffering. And hey, can I have a sandwich? And you're just like, uh, it's kind of weird. Like, we should have had like a transition or something. It's so dramatic that the early church fathers like Tertullian and Cyprian and Augustine and stuff, they were so jarred by this, they're like, it can't mean a sandwich. You know, it can't just mean bread. It's got to mean communion. It's got to mean the word of God. I mean, they had all these other explanations because it was so jarring. Guys, this refers to regular bread. And it shows us what kind of requests are worthy to bring to our Father in heaven. What's big enough? Bread is, you know? Bring your cares. 1 Peter 5, 7 says, cast all your cares upon him because he cares for you. Ask for your daily bread. In the first century context, laborers were usually paid daily, okay? When we talk about daily bread, they earned money daily and bought their bread. They didn't live paycheck to paycheck. They lived day to day, okay? You can imagine the anxiety of that. You don't work. You don't get paid. You don't eat bread, right? And so this prayer is for all of our immediate concerns. And when we pray it in the morning, it's for the day. When we pray it at night, it's for the day we're dreading, right? And we pray for all of our needs and all of our concerns. So when we stop to pray to God, we need to ask him to reveal, what are my burdens? You know, let's be honest with God. Let's have him reveal the burdens we have. You sit down and you go, okay, give us this day our daily bread. Lord, what am I carrying? What burdens am I carrying on my shoulders? These like rocks of, of fear, anxiety, cares. What am I carrying that I need to cast upon you? It says, cast your cares upon him. It's like throwing it or handing it off, right? Cast your cares upon him because he cares for you. I love the way Luther talked about this verse. He said, pray and let God worry about it. Don't you like that? I mean, God doesn't worry, but cast your cares upon him because he cares for you. Pray and let God worry about it. It's his deal. Hand it over to him. And when you, you know, begin to kind of carry it again, hand it over to him. His shoulders are infinitely broad. He can handle it. And so how would this change things, guys? If we prayed this verbatim daily and really meaningfully prayed it, how would it change our anxiety level, our fear level, if we, if we prayed for our daily bread? And then we pray for forgiveness. Look at verse 12. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. This is just as needed as daily bread. Just as much as we need bread and water, we need forgiveness. And Jesus uses an interesting word for sin here, right? He calls it a debt. Why a debt? Because it accrues, and it comes due, and it must be paid, you know? It, it's, it, sin is a debt. And so we pray for forgiveness. But guys, this prayer request has teeth. I don't know if you noticed, but look at verse 12. But forgive us, our, uh, it says, and forgive us our debts. And then what's the next word? As is the tough word there. As we also forgive our debtors. Let me ask you this. How many of you guys would love to be forgiven the way you forgive other people? You know what I mean? You're like, no, that's not what I want to pray. And he says, no, no, pray like this. You're like, why? You know? But um, this, the Lord's Prayer, does give us a template to expand on. And I was asking a lot of people this week, do you use the Lord's Prayer? Like, do you really pray the Lord's Prayer? Most people are like, no, 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 I don't. I do something like it. This would be an area to pray verbatim, okay? Because I really doubt you're coming up with this on your own. I, get, I really doubt you're going to keep this unless you read it. <laughs> give, us, give us forgiveness. Forgive our debts as we forgive our debtors. And forgiveness means, guys, that we completely release other people from their debt. That's what it means to forgive. I have these four promises of forgiveness. When we do pre-marriage counseling, we have people memorize them. Um, I'd like to have Darnell come up. and uh, No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> 
I'll email these to you over the email list. He's ready. Don't, don't look at him shaking his head. There's four promises of forgiveness. When I say I forgive you, I'm making four promises, and these are the promises. I will not dwell on this incident. So I'm promising something internal. I'm not going to think about it. I will not dwell on this incident. I will not bring this incident up and use it against you, married people. I will not talk to others about this incident. I will not allow this incident to stand between us or hinder our relationship. It's to completely release people from their debt, guys. And forgiving others is, whether you like it or not, a core part of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. He brings it up over and over again. He embeds it in the sample prayer. You know, he's just not going to let you get away with it. And then afterwards, he follows it up with verse 14. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will forgive yours. And if you do not forgive others their trespass, neither will your Father forgive your trespass. Later on in the book, he tells this story in Matthew 18 about an unforgiving servant. It's super powerful, I think. Anytime we're struggling with forgiveness, it's the place to go. But in Matthew 18, 21, Peter came up to him and he goes, Lord, how often do I have to forgive uh, my brother? How often, if my brother sins against me, do I have to forgive him? It's great, you know? Like, that would be a cool system. Um, and he says, seven times? He's like, willing to go seven. He says, I don't say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. And Peter's like, oh, okay, 490, that sounds good. No, but what he, and then he tells this story. Jesus says, therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. And when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. If you look in your margin notes in your Bible and do the calculations, 10,000 talents is 200,000 years wages. Okay, so no retirement there. 200,000 years wages. And since he could not pay, obviously, his master ordered him to be sold, his wife and his children and all that he had, that payment might be made. So the servant fell on his knees and implored the master, saying, have patience with me and I'll pay you everything. There's no way. And out of pity for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave his debt. Doesn't set up a payment plan, doesn't say, well, like, give me 10% of it and we'll kind of work on the rest. No. Or I'll forgive it now and you just pay me five bucks a day or whatever you can handle. No. Forgives the debt entirely. Totally released him from it. It says, re released him. Verse uh, 28. Then when that same servant, the one that had just been forgiven, went out and found a fellow servant who owed him 100 denarii. Okay, if you do look at your margin notes and do the calculation, it's 100 days wages. It's a lot. I mean, if you earn $60,000 a year, this dude owes you $20,000. This is a big deal, okay? He says that he, this uh, servant had just been forgiven this huge debt, grabs this other servant who owes him 100 denarii, seizes him and begins to choke him, saying, pay me what you owe. That's what unforgiveness looks like. So his servant fell down and pleaded with him, saying, have patience with me and I will pay you. Sound familiar? And he refused and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants heard what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then the master summoned him and said, you wicked servant, I forgave you all your debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, the master delivered him to the jailer until he should pay all his debt. So will my heavenly father do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from the heart. Um, that pay all the debt, I mean, this guy can't pay it. This is a 200,000-year wage debt that he's supposed to pay in prison. It's impossible. It's actually a picture of hell. You know, why is hell forever if our sinful lives aren't forever? You know, it's sin for 80 years and you go, hell up forever. What's the deal with that? Hell is forever because there's nowhere to, no way to pay there. It's like this guy's debt. There's no way to pay it. And so um, Jesus, guys, in here is not saying that we earn our forgiveness 
by forgiving others. We know from the rest of scripture that Jesus earned our forgiveness by his death on the cross. Jesus is saying for those who have their debts canceled, they should be eager to cancel the debts of others. There's a heart change that happens when you know you owe 200,000 years wages and it's canceled. There's a heart change that happens when you realize that I should be in hell this very moment with no way of escape. There's a heart change that happens there where I'm willing to forgive others. Unforgiveness, guys, is is something that shows that we just don't get what the gospel's about. Or maybe that we're not getting what the gospel's about right now. You know, gospel needs to be fresh to us. Unforgiveness, guys, should be the most alarming thing we find in our souls. And if it's something you're carrying around, unforgiveness, bitterness, things like that, please talk to us. We would love to be a help to you. Because I know for a fact how hard it is to kind of shake when you've been bitter for years. I've been bitter for years against people before. And it's, it's a terrible trap. And you, you want out, but you kind of don't want out. It's like this terrible trap, bitterness. Um, I've told you before, I'm not the kind of person that's going to, like, go crazy and scream at you. I would hate you silently. You would never know. You know, like, that's great, you know. I don't hate any of you silently at the moment. Um, but if you're stuck in that, please come to us. We would love to help you with that. We'd love to help you to, to, to break free from that. To be a Christian, guys, means to have a blank slate before God. And to have everyone else have a blank slate before us. So um, I would just think about, like, if we would pray this regularly, how would it transform our relationships? How would it transform our relationships if, like, multiple times a day we said, forgive my debts as I forgive my debtors? He wants to force us in that corner so that we'll deal with with our unforgiveness. Um, Lastly, and this one's quick, um, we ask for deliverance. Look at verse 13. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Um, this, this passage is not saying that God tempts us. Um, James 1.13 says, uh, No one should say when they're tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But God can, guys, draw us nearer to himself so that we could avoid temptation that we might have otherwise gotten stuck into. And that's what we're praying for here. We're praying, Lord, don't let me wander. Father, don't let me wander anywhere where temptation would overtake me. And this kind of heart makes sense, guys, because if we believe that we've been forgiven so greatly at such a great cost, we don't want to just avoid sinning. We want to avoid temptation, don't you? Don't you like, I don't just want to avoid sin. I want to avoid temptation. Um, We don't have the spirit that like kind of looks for the line of sin and kind of wants to get as close to it as possible without going over I mean, we all remember that in our lives. There was a time when we were like that. But, you know, when we see the gospel, we see how we've been forgiven at such great cost. We're not looking to kind of ride the line. That's not the goal, right? Like, like Lot. You remember Lot in the Old Testament? So um, there's Abraham and Lot. Lot's the nephew. And, and they've got too, many, too, too much herds and stuff like that to be together. And Abraham goes, you know, choose the way. And there's this, like, one side that looks like the Garden of Eden. And there's this other side that looks like, uh, like Menifee last year. You know, and, and Lot goes, I'll take the Garden of Eden side. And he's like, all right, fine, I kind of thought you would. You know, and they split, okay? And, and down in that kind of greener area, guys, was the city of Sodom. And it says that when he first set up his tents, he set up his tent with the opening looking at Sodom. And then every time he took down the tent and put it up again, he did this. And then he did this. And then pretty soon he's living there. You know? And it says in uh, the New Testament, it says his soul was kind of tormented by what was in there, the bad things that were in that city. But he had made this riding the line thing. This prayer, guys, is a prayer that we would stay very far away from the dangers of temptation. Lead us not into temptation. Doesn't that help? I mean, Jesus' instruction here is so good. I think we should actually use it. 
Okay? Like, I'm going to advocate a really weird thing. I think we should actually pray the Lord's Prayer. And I think to take it and to add to it and have it as a skeleton for our prayer would be great, but I don't think we should neglect it. I think, guys, this prayer is awesome. I found it awesome for me when I am psychologically unable to pray on my own. You have a situation like that? You're so wrapped up in anxiety. You're so wrapped up in depression. You're so wrapped up in anger. Like you find it so hard to pray. Take this out. This will get you started. And it's great because it amazes us by who we're talking to. We're talking about our Heavenly Father. And who and what kind of requests to bring to him. So I just want to pray as we go, uh, using this as a template and add some things to it. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we're so thankful that you're our Heavenly Father. And uh, we just pray, Lord, hallowed be your name, Lord. Father, we pray you'd be treasured. We pray that you would be the desire of every nation and the joy of every longing heart, Lord. Start with us, Lord. Help us to um, treasure you in our hearts. Hallowed be your name. We pray that that would radiate in our families with our kids and with our coworkers and, and relatives and um, maybe spouses and that it would radiate in our families. It would radiate everywhere we go. Lord, we pray your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Father, we pray bring your kingdom here. Lord, as we prayed earlier, let your kingdom come. We need you to come. We need your son to come, physically come to this world and reign on this place and rule it and make it new. We pray, Lord, you'd start that in our own lives. We pray that that little throne that's in our hearts, Lord, that it would be occupied by no one else but Jesus. We pray, Lord, that as we live the kingdom life, it would radiate out from us and that others would be freed and enter his kingdom. Father, we pray, send your son to reign here. Let your kingdom come. Lord, we pray that you would give us this day our daily bread. Father, give us the things that we need. Lord, we are creatures which is weird to say, we're creatures that need to be fed. We're creatures that have all kinds of needs and desires and worries and fears and things that aren't needs, but we think they are. Lord, we pray that you would feed us. We pray, Lord, that you'd help us to cast all our cares upon you because you care for us. Father, we pray that you would forgive our debts as we forgive our debtors. Father, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought and word and deed. We've done things we shouldn't do and we've left things undone we should have done. Lord, we have not loved you with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We pray, Lord, that you would forgive us. We're truly sorry for that, Lord. We pray that you would forgive us. And Father, we pray that as you forgive us, that you would give us a heart to forgive others. Lord, we have not been put on any kind of payment plan for our debt. It's been canceled. Lord, help us to not do that with other people. Help us to zero their balances. Help us to release them, Lord. It's one of the hardest things to do. It requires your supernatural power. We pray you do that here. Give us hearts that forgive the way we've been forgiven. And Father, we pray that you would lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Lord, we know that sin is a predator, always crouching in our door. Its desire is to have us. Father, we pray that you would deliver us from evil and keep us far from any temptation that would take us down. Father, we're so thankful for you. We, we appreciate you so much. We love you, Lord. Please continue to stir in us a love for you. And because we have a love for you, a love to speak to you, to bring our requests to you. Lord, help us to be a praying people. Thank you for this practical instruction that you have right in your word that we can open anytime, that we can memorize and have in our hearts. And as we take communion, as we worship you, Lord, we pray that you would be honored, that you would be pleased that you would be hallowed. We pray this in Jesus' name. 
You've been listening to the weekly podcast of the Menifee Campus of Covenant Grace Church. If you'd like to know more about Covenant Grace Church, visit us online at covgrace.org.